Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the June 30, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. For the whole hour, we shall hear from a font of religion and history who walks among us, UCI Humanities Professor Jack Miles, editor of the recently released Norton Anthology of World Religions. He'll examine how, among other things, uh, we'll, we'll talk about sort of the cosmopolitan aspect of really understanding religion and lead into what, along the continuum of homogeneous societies and heterogeneous societies, how they're dealing with multiple religions. But, and that's only six religions in under one hour. Amen. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the whole hour today is Jack Miles, Distinguished Professor of English at UCI, as well Senior Fellow for Religious Affairs with the Pacific Council on International Policy. You may have seen his work in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Boston Globe, The Washington Post, heard him on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, or seen him recently at one of the several local forums on religion. Miles has been affiliated in major capacities at Caltech, the Claremont Graduate University, the J. Paul Getty Trust, and the Committee on the Conceptual Foundations of Science at the University of Chicago. He has written award-winning books, God, a Biography, and Christ, a Crisis in the Life of God. Apart from his editing contributions at Doubleday, U.S. UC Press, Jack Miles is the general editor of the recently released Norton Anthology of World Religions, which I'm hoping are in abundant supply at the Anhill Bookstore, as it is a focus about what he'll be talking on today's show. He studied as a Jesuit seminarian at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome and the Hebrew University in Jerusalem before completing his Ph.D. at Harvard in Near Eastern Languages and Literature. In the tradition of rigorous Jesuit training, Jack Miles is fluent in several modern languages. He joins me in studio today to pry open his massive undertaking as the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Religions. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jack Miles. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, let's start with, you have some permissive, if not certain convivial terms upon which you welcome and you invite the readers to approach the anthologies, the notion of a gallery. Uh, so what, what did you um, talk about that first? So we all know that we're all welcome to come on into this t heady two-volume piece of work. The image of the gallery uh, serves two functions. One is that it addresses the way in which the religious and the secular tend to be interpenetrating in our modern experience. I quote a, a poet who says that uh, one can feel holy in a gallery or sinful in a presbytery. I think he puts it that way. I'm probably modifying the language a little bit, but the point is that uh, people find the sacred in other places than in the the usual ones. So that's the first image that uh, 
the first point that the image of the gallery makes. The second, though, is probably a little bit more practical for most people. If you have some degree of curiosity about the world of religion and you're confronted with 4,000 pages of text, you might say to yourself, so much material, so many pages, I'll, I'll never ever finish it and so not begin. But outside an art museum, no one ever says, oh my, so many pictures, I won't go in. You go in understanding that you're going to look at some pictures and you're going to find your way around and uh, assemble a kind of gallery within the gallery. And, and that's what I anticipate people doing with uh, the Norton Anthology of World Religions. Those who do take the trouble to go straight through, as people sometimes do in an art museum, will take away a very rich and complete experience of uh, the world's religions. But those who spend only a few hours or only a few minutes will take away something. And maybe we can tack on with that analogy is that the Mona Lisa could be Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech that you'll find in the Christianity section. That's that's one of those that uh, that, that we've included. It's true. The Mona Lisa. So it it's, it's art, it's literature, it's quotations from the scriptures. It's, I guess, I, I, would you consider anything in here primary uh, materials? I, I think most of them are secondary and tertiary, are they not? I, except for Martin Luther King would be an example of a, a primary material. I would say that uh, almost all of what we have is, is primary. And I explain in my general introduction what I mean by that. That is to say that these texts have been produced by and for the practitioners of religions themselves, rather than by sociologists or anthropologists or historians talking about them as a, about somebody else's bad habits. This is a work that was <laughs> produced for, for the consumption of those who were participating in these uh, various religious communities over time. All over time. Over time, yes. Yes, and the, the anthology does does try to begin with origins and continue right down uh, to the present uh, for each of the six uh, major religious traditions that it charts. And explain to us why you chose these six religions. It was very intentional. Well, I was, I was approached by the head of the college division of W.W. W. Norton, which is a major publisher of... Uh, academic anthologies, the most famous probably being the long-established Norton Anthology of World Religions, to do something similar uh, for religion. And I asked him what he wanted me to include, and he said, that's for you to determine. Well, he, that was a smart thing to say. And my determination after some uh, reflection was that we would anthologize, and I'm going to use three terms now, and each of these terms counts, major, living, international religions. Let me begin with the third, international. Uh, we don't, in our anthology, speak of Eastern and Western uh, religions, because after all, Christianity is well established in the Philippine Islands and, uh, and Korea at the eastern end of what we think of as, uh, as our world. Islam is sometimes categorized uh, with the Western religions, Judaism and Christianity. You hear the term now sometimes Abrahamic. But that's not a geographic term, is it? 
No. Uh, if anything, uh, Abrahamic would locate you in the far western extreme of Asia. Of Asia. Uh, and uh, and so we took the position that because of mass international migration, all the major religions are everywhere. So we would just we would consider them uh, under that heading. We would consider them as potentially found anywhere. Uh, now let's take the term living. This anthology doesn't uh, uh, anthologize any of the many dead religions of the world. So we don't anthologize Greco-Roman uh, religion. Greek mythology is fascinating, still very important uh, to the arts, but it's not a living religion. Nobody goes to church and prays to Zeus uh, any longer. That we know of. That we know of. Yes, I mean, yes. One, whenever one says never in the world of religion, uh, one has to swallow hard because there's probably somebody out there who's still doing it. And other uh, other religions um, from antiquity are comparably uh, dead. So we don't attempt to anthologize them. And the trickiest of all these terms is the term major. And we use it principally in a demographic uh, head-counting uh, sense, even though we're aware that different religions count heads in different ways, and some really don't count. Uh, they don't they don't proceed primarily by membership um, in something like a synagogue, or a church, or a mosque. Uh, nonetheless, it's possible demographically to establish that five of the six uh, religions that we anthologize are definitely major, demographically speaking. And then there's one that isn't, and the one that isn't is Judaism. Judaism by headcount is quite small. It's it's very fascinating. It's very rewarding to uh, the student, but that could be said of other small religions. So why does this one uh, get in and other small religions don't? The reason is that you cannot understand the world's two largest religions, which are Christianity and Islam, without a very s substantial understanding of the Jewish roots that they uh, that nourish them the subject of um, of deities and uh, uh, monotheistic polytheistic um, worship has come up in various forums and you bring up in your introduction which folks the introduction itself is a tome just 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 to get started with and the, you talk about the Venn diagram, a Venn, of how religions are, uh, I don't want to say observant, you'll, you'll have a better term for me, but the, how the Venn diagram works to explain this relationship of worship with the one or more deities in any given religion. Monotheism as against uh, polytheism is a matter of belief, and religions all have various beliefs to which they attach varying degrees of importance. They have beliefs, for example, about how the world originated. They have beliefs about how men and women uh, differ. They have uh, beliefs about where morality originated. 
did was it always there did it come along at a certain date by revelation from uh, the god in what way uh, did it happen these are the areas uh, that we call uh, belief in addition then there are practices and the practices are sometimes linked to the beliefs but sometimes they're really not and uh, as you know in in this work I have six associate editors I did not do we're, this we'll name each one of them at, in, in due time yes now we can do that too if you'd like well, we, I'll, I'll name I'll name one that, that indirectly okay. you have brought up so the the associate editor for Hinduism is a great scholar named Wendy Doniger and it is she who, in attempting to say what is Hinduism, introduces this notion of a Venn diagram. And to imagine a Venn diagram, you should uh, imagine a kind of circle made up of smaller circles, each of which uh, is overlapping uh, with the next. So to step into any one of them, in a way, is to step into the full set. And the, the Venn diagram in fact, was an invention of a British mathematician who was a specialist in set theory. So here we're talking about a special kind of set, that set of uh, practices uh, that one finds a given group of people engaging in. But when one looks close, one sees that any individual one of those practitioners engages in a different subset and almost nobody does every single one of them and their relationship to uh, the beliefs is an entirely uh, separate matter or was at least a somewhat uh, a separate matter so she does this to say that hindus are people who practice some subset of this uh, set of practices which she proceeds to list so in my general introduction i take wendy's idea and say that the world's religions as a whole can be considered as a very large Venn diagram. All of those practices that the world's religious practitioners engage in with all of the relationships that, that they have to different uh, beliefs. Um, in practice, practice is more important than belief. What people do matters to them more and matters to the world more than what they think about what they're doing. So in this way, our anthology is a consideration of how the practices of these six uh, traditions have developed over time and how they have been expressed in the texts that were produced along the way. And one, I'm, I'm going to take quotes from your own introduction too, but one of the and in, in we're talking in your discussion about the the practice, what how it matters. It you mentioned no definition of religion enjoys general acceptance, and sort of that fits into that diagram. It's sort of how there's overlap and That's right. it's movement around inside that large circle that's set up there. It's it's quite remarkable. Then um, another um, a theme here as sort of there's a continuum of condescension about religion from religions about others condescension along a continuum to comparison and all knowledge begins with comparison that was a riveting passage of yours in your mm -hmm. introduction I, I can't think of a more uh, insightful pedagogical uh, approach to uh, interpreting this mm -hmm. 
You know, I would say that that sentence, all knowledge begins with comparison, is simply a kind of gloss on my lifelong experience as a learner. It's how I have always found myself learning. I understand. It's like it, people say sometimes that you learn by traveling. Uh, well, how is it that, that travel teaches you? It teaches you as you begin to compare how they do it here with how they did it back home. You know, and you say, oh, well, now there are two ways to, let's say, handle the management of traffic. Traffic often uh, is a marvel in another country. How do they possibly not kill each other every day of the week? Well, they, they don't, although they don't do it the way we do it in America, do they? Well, you can, you can learn by comparisons in almost any uh, field, and often that is the, the best way. Can I just also add that the comparisons of how you as an individual uh, interact with that new setting as well. It's not not how uh, just how things are done there, but how you as a person uh, you navigate and on your terms, your your comportment is also interpreted differently when you're somewhere else. So it's sort it's there's a sort of sliding scale of person and system that yeah, well that it's it, it's, it's interactive. So you're in, you're interpreting the country that you've moved into, and the country is interpreting you. Yes. And you discover that you have conveyed meaning when you perhaps didn't intend to or have failed to convey it when you did intend to. Overplayed your hand or... Yes. Yes. Exactly. So you were saying uh, then about the travel or that was... The well, it, about uh, all, all knowledge the begins with uh, comparison. But this isn't the commonest uh, attitude among practitioners of religion. No. Uh, it has grown up as a common attitude among scholars of religion over the centuries of Western history. And uh, that attitude that we all have perhaps something to learn from practitioners of another tradition has begun to affect the practice of religion as well. So the, the famous German scholar of comparative religion, Max Müller, said, he who knows one religion knows none. Now, that didn't used to be uh, a common attitude among the practitioners of the world's religions. They were quite content to know one and no other. And they were very imperialistic. Uh, well, some were. Some, so, yes. Some were. Some have always stayed home. I mean, the Hopi are not particularly imperialistic. Uh, so. Or nor the Buddhists, but we'll get, yes. But, so, back to Mr. Müller. Okay. Well, that... that uh, the attitude that there was something to be gained uh, from uh, comparison, I would say, began in the university setting, but now it's an attitude that one encounters uh, quite commonly in in people who are religious leaders in anybody's understanding of the world. The Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, for example, the late Abraham Joshua Heschel, a prophetic figure. Uh, within Orthodox uh, Judaism, someone who, who famously marched at Selma with uh, Martin Luther King. He has a, a distinct essay on learning from those of other religions. No one who has read Heschel has any doubt that he was born a Jew, lived a Jew, and died a Jew. Uh, there was never any doubt that he was going to convert uh, that ever any fear that he would convert to another uh, religion. And yet, he felt he had learned from other uh, religions. That mm -hmm. attitude is new. Um, and as it grows, it offers promise for 
religious peace around the world in our time, and that's where we hope our anthology can make a small contribution. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI Humanities Professor Jack Miles, the general editor of the recently released Norton Anthology of World Religion on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web around the world at KUCI.org. So you bring up an interesting part about this. Uh, in, well, there's a lot of things you brought up. that We're going to keep trying to thread back to some of these. That it, This idea of a, a stretch uh, along the stretch of discovery, knowledge on the other side of another revelation, mm-hmm. whether it's science or religion, and you, you show us along the way where major breakthroughs occurred the early part of the 18th century, the religious ceremonies and customs, that's a shorthand for that, and, and you mentioned Max Muller's Sacred Books of the East. It caused the, the reading, and m- most of these things, like your book, but many of most of these tomes on religion were always meant for a general audience, not just for a, speci- a, a clerical select few. That, I mean, that's, that, that is a mainstay. Am I correct about that? I, mean, I think there, are, there have been certainly some that were intended uh, for scholars. But the remarkable thing about uh, religious uh, customs of the entire world, which was produced by uh, Picard uh, in the uh, middle of the, or the earlier part of the 18th century, is that it was intended for the general reader and was heavily illustrated. Our own uh, work, by the way, is, is quite generously uh, illustrated. Yes, and, and that uh, that does add, you know, a good deal of attraction. It it offers a kind of visible and friendly doorway into material that, if it were all there in gray text, would just seem um, much more forbidding. Um, and religion, I have an example about that, if I may. Go ahead. That uh, the the painting. From I believe it's a painting from eighteen um, the eighteen late 1880s, where there is uh, in the Judaic section, mm-hmm. uh, it's the painting is inside a synagogue and you can feel the enlightenment taking hold of mm-hmm. the Judaic uh, religion where the the women are they're separated but not by much mm-hmm. and they're they're looking they're more on equal footing mm-hmm. they can practically reach over a small um, Divider, Bear, a divider. Right. They mm-hmm. can practice, and they're practically touching the men that are in worship in the synagogue. I mean, that that photograph is telling us there's dynamism. If we all understood what was involved in the in the ghetto uh, in in Judaic Europe, this this photograph was or this I'm painting. It's, it's, it's a, a painting. Right. The painting uh, gives us a, a. It just was riveting to to take in the implications of that piece of art. Mm-hmm. So you're. Pictorial views are really helpful. That uh, that particular painting has another uh, dimension to it. You you see older men and younger men, mm-hmm. and you get this sense of the transmission of uh, of something from one generation uh, to the next. So it, it's very well chosen. So you're talking about though the, the pictures in terms of reaching to general audiences and the the selections. It, it's a very deliberate kind of of intention with reaching those readers, the general ones. Religion is a human reality that by and large does not uh, live on or from uh, the the library or the campus. 
if there were no university, the religions would go on, and they would continue reading and writing, producing texts, publishing texts, and employing them in their uh, their own way. So, in a in that sense, it's only natural that works that uh, are attempting to compare uh, religion should be directed at the general reader and the general audience, and not only at uh, that small number of people who around the world specialize in the study uh, of religion. And this uh, path-breaking work in the middle of the 18th century did uh, exactly that. It went through many, many editions, many translations, many of which were pirated uh, around the world and boldlerized and plagiarized. And and, right. But, you know, although that's, uh, that's an offense against, uh, you might say, the, the pocketbook of those who created it, <laughs> They're long gone, and it's a tribute uh, to the pervasive power uh, of their their work. Uh, I learned, I have to say, that I learned about this work during a year that I spent as a scholar-in-residence at the Getty Research Institute from a, a trio of wonderful uh, historians, two of whom are uh, friends of mine over at UCLA, uh, Lynn Hunt and Peg Jacobs, so I, I give homage to them here since you bring that book up. And it was no accident that those French authors of that work, The Religious Ceremonies and Customs, they had to do it in the Netherlands where they had the spiritual and uh, psychic room to, to print what would be a, a, a bit of a subversive idea about mm-hmm. longstanding notions of what Christianity is. Right. And then the Netherlands in the 18th century uh, also gave them political room. Exactly. It, it was a, a society that that led the way uh, in tolerance uh, for, for those of varying uh, religions, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews uh, lived there in, in uh, open practice of unhindered practice of uh, their respective uh, faiths and uh, that was also of course uh, 200 years after the discovery of America and the discovery of America was part of the great Portuguese and Spanish expansion of the mental world that Europe uh, lived in uh, as uh, the both of the Americas but also China India, Japan uh, were opened up uh, for the first time, and even, um, you know, parts of the Muslim world that had never been visited before uh, came into view. So uh, there was, a, there was a, a process then of stock-taking, as uh, reports from traders, explorers, and even um, the most thoughtful missionaries uh, could be collated, put together, and of course, this was an era before photography, so they were illustrated from written descriptions. And some of the illustrations are a bit comical to us as someone who, someone tries to uh, paint a pagoda who's never seen a pagoda. Oh, imagine uh, Just that. from a written description. But you can see how the written description would give you an idea that you could then try to turn into not actually a painting but an engraving. And yet, uh, even though there were, of course, errors uh, of imagination or representation, 
there was also an excitement about it. You, you were now seeing for the first time what the buildings looked like and what the, what the parades and practices and rituals uh, looked like in parts of the world that only a few decades earlier you, you didn't even know existed. And the languages, they didn't even know how to, to read them. and that, that, That's huge. I, I wanted to bring up the notion you discuss about the paganism from the Roman times. That definition had to change when those explorations brought back other belief systems that, that did not fit the Western Judeo-Christian motifs so that mm-hmm. the, word, the, the term pagan had to change with the exposure and... Uh, it's not. I don't think it's just Buddhism, but the exposure to the indigenous population in the Americas. Oh, by no means is it only Buddhism. But let's talk about what paganism uh, originally meant. Okay, the Latin word pagus means the countryside. And a paganus is, uh, in, in Roman times, someone who lived uh, in the country. Christianity spread from city to city. And when it became the state religion of the Roman Empire, it still was essentially a religion of the towns and cities. And the Pagani, the pagans, were those who were out in the country while still worshipping Minerva and Zeus and Venus and so forth. Uh, And then, uh, as Christianity spread even into the country, pagans and paganism referred to the memory of that now dead uh, religion. So what were the living religions uh, that the Christian Roman Empire and then the Christian Middle Ages knew? They were three. Uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Those three they knew at first hand. And what was paganism? It was, uh, in the first instance, the memory of the old uh, Roman worship uh, polytheism. Okay. But then they did know that there was a world uh, beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire, and they had a general sense that back out there in that very far distance, they were all polytheists and idolaters, and so they called them all pagans. And in a very, very global way, they referred to their beliefs as paganism. But... uh, as the uh, explorers actually went to the places where these religions, other religions were being practiced, they saw they weren't by any means all alike. They weren't just one single thing. And so they began to make differentiations. And little by little, it was observed that Buddhism was not the same uh, as uh, Hinduism. And Buddhism and Hinduism were not the same as Confucianism or Taoism. Uh, And within each of these uh, large families of religion, there were, of course, subdivisions. And uh, and so that's that's finally what Europe had to take into account. And the term term paganism was in a way uh, retired. I mean, it's still still used, of course, and still used in that very vague and and global way. But but what I've just described is essentially its evolution over time. And then the these revelations also had a subversive kind of function, as it turned out, an influence in that it, the interpretation of historic aspects of a religion would question 
the accepted mythology of a religion so that it the the practice especially with protestants this was a very problematic uh sort of revelation mm-hmm. for for mm-hmm. protestants who were making history uh, a, a it would have been it was literal what was in the bible that the protestants were following so as as the 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 scholars were seeing behind the historical uh, actual uh, the, uh, discoveries mm-hmm. that redefined what was the belief system based on mythology. It lots of house of cards and religion started to to fall. What you're just describing is really the the kind of great second stage in our understanding of the world's religions, which came about. Uh, than in the 19th century. So um, after the colonial era in the 18th century with the birth of rationalism, the process of comparing religions essentially did begin. But as you mentioned earlier, the languages of those religions weren't known, and so their scriptures hadn't been recovered. Their other writings hadn't been recovered, much less translated. Right. And uh, it's also the case that uh, Europeans, as late as the 18th century, had a very uh, foreshortened understanding of world uh, history. The chronological frame of world history uh, did not go back uh, before the Bible. And for uh, it was understood that uh, the story told in the Bible was a, a story that began before the birth of uh, the Greek and Roman empires. But what was before that, essentially? Nothing that Europe knew about. Well, as these other literatures began to be translated, uh, it became clear that the world was older than the Bible thought. And the greatest uh, of these, or the the Mm. most initially earth-shaking of these, was the translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphic. Well, there it was quite clear that there was a written history of uh, the ancient Near East uh, that went back uh, to as far as 4000 uh, BC, whereas nothing in the Bible that historians could date uh, was more than about half that old. Uh, And this, of course, is all... uh, Further changed by evolution and the uh, and the and the notion of prehistory, a history of the human species before even the uh, invention of uh, of writing. All of that happened um, in uh, in the nineteenth uh, century. Uh, the languages were deciphered, and the chronology uh, was expanded. And for any a tradition that thought it was based on history, this was very troubling. And it would have been presumptuous to to think that any any scholar or belief system could draw the line when religion first came about in the in the evolution of man. So very presumptuous. Yes, it doesn't mean that this uh, is a subject that isn't worth looking into. The late great sociologist of religion, Robert Bella, uh, he published as his last uh, great work, Religion in Human Evolution. And he, he attempts to, to draw some kind of link between uh, human prehistory and uh, human recorded history, 
and to recognize that human religion is something that wasn't necessarily there at the very, very, very beginning, that did have its own beginning at some point within human, uh, human history. But just when? Well, that's, he doesn't really succeed in doing. It doesn't claim to uh, succeed in doing either. Maybe someday we will find a way to find that out. <sighs> but right now it's, it's still really quite, uh, quite speculative. When, you know, the burial, animals don't bury their dead. They certainly don't bury them with ornamentation. They don't bury them in special positions. They don't bury them in containers. All of these things uh, seem to reflect some kind of established practice, which we could call religious, some kind of belief that uh, what else could we call except uh, religious. And since we don't find any ancient human remains, garbage heaps, you know, caves, you know, that don't show something like this, it looks as if uh, human life and religious life may be almost as old the one as the other. So it's, it, you don't, it certainly is a, an unestablished claim to say that there's an early phase of human existence without religion. And you brought up an interesting point, too, that with uh, um, other revelations, uh, uh, like the fact that when the Westerners explored Asia and they at first they saw Buddha as a manifestation of, of God, but they a godlike uh, figure. But in um, and I remind me where the revelation occurred or who was able to realize that Buddha was really a human being. The Buddhism editor of the Norton Anthology World Religions is uh, my colleague Donald Lopez from the University of Michigan, and uh, he he tells this story very well in his book From Stone to Flesh. And the answer to your question is that it was many reports that were coming in from different travelers in different places that were collated then uh, back in Europe by uh, especially a few scholars in France. And he mentions one named Birnouf especially, who who finally saw uh, that the pattern, who connected the dots, and saw that this figure, though presented almost as a god, was really a, a historical human being, and that he had lived his uh, life in India, even though the religion we call Buddhism wasn't practiced any longer in, in India in any significant degree at the time that Europeans first arrived in, uh, in India. Uh, this, this was uh, quite uh, an intellectual uh, uh, breakthrough. Yes, I, was, I imagine, Jack. Well, how would you, wouldn't that have been an extraordinary revelation as a scholar to, yes, and you to can, put you, together? You, you can easily see how the travelers <sighs> would have been misled uh, Buddha in different places is called by very, very different names. In China, for example, he is called Fo. You know, as a, as a European who doesn't know Chinese or knows only a, perhaps a smattering of uh, Chinese, to connect uh, Fo with someone called Buddha in another location uh, is is quite a jump. But finally, that uh, that jump, you know, was uh, was taken. You know, I'd, I'd like to break in to say something about Do. the about the uh, 
the term religion and what I've been talking about here so freely as the origin of religion or religion in prehistory. The term religion in the form in which we use it is far more recent than uh, one might think. That term wasn't used in ancient Israel. It wasn't used in the modern sense in the ancient Christian church. It was scarcely used in our sense of the word uh, even in the Middle Ages. However, that thing which we refer to now as religion uh, can be attested, even though operating under language costumes, you might say, in these different er, earlier uh, periods. That at least is the position that, that uh, I take in my general introduction, and I don't find contradicted, at least, by anything that my associate editors have put together in their collections. If you just joined us, my guest is UCI Humanities Distinguished Professor of English in the Humanities School here at UC Irvine. He is the general editor of the recently released Norton Anthology of World Religions. I want to just give a, a rundown of all of the editors that's what we mentioned already. Wendy Doniger, who has presented Hinduism in very many fashions. Donald Lopez Jr., Universe, he's from the University of Michigan, and he has covered, if I could say covered, uh, every word we use on this show is, is presumptuous, uh, Buddhism. James Robson from Harvard has covered Taoism, and we haven't said very much about Taoism. No, but and it's a great story. It, and so, and, and David, is it Bial or Biale? From UC, Beale, he Beale. Okay, Beale from UC Davis uh, covers Judaism. Lawrence Cunningham, Christianity, and he's from Notre Dame. And Jane Domin McAuliffe from Bryn Mawr and Georgetown. Maybe she's moved from one to the other. She's, she's now director of scholarly programs at the Library of Congress. Uh, right now. Oh, okay. That, this just in. Yes. <laughs> and covers Islam. And uh, I just, I was curious, are they, to the extent you know them, are they practitioners as well as scholars of the religions that they covered respectively? Because one wants to know. I mean, I, from Notre Dame, I can sort of guess. But It, it wasn't... Uh, an issue for us as as we chose them. It was a question that arose. You know, would we would we always have a Muslim on Islam, a Hindu on Hinduism, and so forth? And uh, th the answer was no. Uh, we wanted uh, those who understood these uh, traditions in the kind of understanding that is proper for exploration rather than practice and for the university context, the context of study and understanding uh, rather than uh, religious uh, engagement. Um, I would say that uh, uh, a couple of them are uh, pract practitioners of the religions that they talk about. All of them are sympathetic uh, with uh, the practitioners and know many of them personally, you know, deal with them easily. But might not. I know that Donald Lopez, for example, is not a practicing Buddhist. He made a funny comment uh, in a program that I uh, was with him on at the of the Getty. He said, "I'm one of those who went in the '60s in search of enlightenment and came home with a PhD." <laughs> oh, oh, you, that's funny. So he's wry about himself. But he's, that helps. he's a very unusual uh, PhD. He's, he's 
He is so knowledgeable about every aspect of uh, world Buddhism uh, that his his presence, his counsel is of, of use to many people who are practitioners, I would say. I, I have a wide-eyed question that I've heard you talk about before. Before we go into some special readings that uh, we want to include in this coverage, and that is, um, it's, we've, t we've sort of talked around the edges about cosmopolitanism. You say in a very lovely way in your introduction about how an, a greater understanding of religions just makes societies, makes us more interesting. It, it's a real cultural perk for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I've been fascinated by my own witnessing of the difference in which homogenous societies deal with incoming new religions in that society than how heterogeneous societies deal with that. Mm -hmm. And I've had a, and this is a whole leap out of the, um, the, the, comp, the more sort of general and historical comments we're making here, but I, I was able to live, I was immersed in a culture that was 97% Lutheran, 98% Danish, and, and the time that I lived there, and there, then over each successive visit I made there, I saw a change toward a heterogenizing, shall we say, uh, changes, influences mm -hmm. in there. And mm -hmm. I know from, uh, from other Scandinavian sorts of attests that the Danes, as they're puzzling over their adjusting to this heterogeneous trend, they are probably the most outspoken of the Scandinavians in dealing with it. I don't know how to compare them with other uh, other c countries around in Europe that are struggling with this, but they, the Danes do struggle. So I, I wanted to ask you about how that homogenous society uh, in their, um, their press, how they dealt with the cartoonish depictions of Mohammed in their, the Vestjuskten, um, as well as how the French uh, dealt uh, with the, the satire in, of Mohammed in Charlie Hebdo. How, how you had some really interesting things to say before about the, those kinds of adjustments, uh, uh, the kind, what uh, sort of sliding scale naivete and uh, just sort of a progressive kind of tweaking of of some general and touchy themes that were a sacrilege to some. Well, here we're we're moving away from the Norton anthology of world religions into you might say with your permission. Uh, with my permission, you have it. Uh, <laughs> into the the context of mingling among our religious populations that is taking place in our world. And of course, that very mingling is a premise uh, for this book. Yes. It is the fact that such mingling is taking place that makes it valuable for some publisher to assemble a tool for learning about these religions in some depth uh, that uh, has now been accomplished by W.W. W. Norton in this uh, anthology. Um, I point out in my introduction that uh, Islam is the most rapidly growing uh, religion uh, in Europe, but Christianity is growing uh, at the moment more rapidly in Central Africa than Islam is. And watch out, watch in China or in Asia that Christianity, there yes. could, the door is about getting kicked open there. That's right. So with so many people. So once uh, homogeneous societies are 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 now much more heterogeneous as you as you say. Uh, and um, 
how is this to to be dealt with? Well, let me comment. Uh, I, I don't have at my fingertips much about what the popular Danish uh, reaction was to the cartoons that were published there, but I, I have thought a good deal and written some about the Charlie Hebdo matter. And, of course, the, the, uh, the crime was uh, an atrocity. It was a, it was a mass murder. Uh, it was a disgrace uh, to those who, who did it and uh, a shame upon um, anyone who would share uh, their beliefs. And yet there's a problem with uh, the phrase, je suis Charlie. Uh, when all, all France uh, stands up and says, I am uh, Charlie Hebdo, that means I scorn you just the way that magazine did. And the, and the magazine's cartoon depictions of uh, Mohammed in the pose of Brigitte Bardot lying with a bare butt on a double bed uh, that any uh, Frenchman would uh, would recognize, a very famous uh, shot by Roger Vadim, uh, is, an, is a, a perfectly conscious, deliberate uh, insult. And it doesn't really matter that they may insult everybody. Uh, the fact that, that you may insult everybody doesn't, doesn't take away the sting when you insult me. And if, my, if your entire country stands up and says, we all insult you, then that is uh, creating a problem going forward. So while on the one hand we want to uh, express scorn for uh, and, and condemnation of the criminals as criminals and recognize that a crime like that does have a chilling effect on free speech, I wouldn't d deny that for a moment, and I regret it. That's what's complicated about it. At the same time... It is the very opposite of, the, of good manners or the creation of a climate of mutual tolerance to say, we as one man in our country despise you. And that's what Je suis Charlie uh, seemed to be saying to the Muslims of, uh, of France. We Frenchmen despise you. So there's a, there's a problem with it. It meant one thing in the minds of those who said it, they wanted to say, we, we defend wit, we defend freedom of speech, we defend safety for, for people no matter what they say. And all of that can be applauded. But it's a metaphor to say, je suis Charlie. And metaphors are slippery. They can end up saying, uh, you can end up saying something when you use a metaphor that you didn't intend to say. It was an overreach. It was, it was yes, it was a double entendre. Uh, and the second uh, of the meanings was not intended and, and yet was received. And uh, and so harm was done. Well, I this would be a chance to uh, bring out the selections that you were going to read. It addresses a little bit about what we're saying. There, there does, was ignorance yes. in the backdrop of that global line that the, the mm -hmm. French tacked on. Uh, so I would like for you, uh, It's we are in the middle of Ramadan, and the last word... Uh, in your second volume is Tariq Ramadan's, and he, he himself is, there's a whole story about him that's really quite remarkable. I don't know that he's even been allowed back in this country yet. Um, uh, he's, I think he had to repatriate to Switzerland, stay put. He wasn't allowed back in here. There, was, there were visa problems for him that went on and on. It's quite true. So you had a couple of selections. I don't know if you want to start with Tariq Ramadan yes, let's, let's or your that. own words. Okay. In the, in the selection from Tariq Ramadan, which is from his book, Western Muslims and the Future of Islam. 
he draws attention to the fact that uh, interreligious dialogue has typically been something that took place among a minority, an open-minded minority of practitioners of religions, when the dialogue is most needed among uh, those who are most closed-minded. And, and this means then that there is a, there is a task of mediation and, and cultural dialogue for everybody. Uh, the most important dialogues are those that take place accidentally as you have to work next or live next to somebody of a different religion who conducts himself in a different way and, and how do you proceed and what do you think as you do that. So here are a couple paragraphs uh, from his, Thank you. From his uh, essay on that subject. The responsibility of people involved in dialogue between religions is in fact doubly important. Whether they have become specialists or are simply members of an interreligious group, it is vital that they play the role of mediators between their partners in dialogue and their co-religionists. Mm. It is a question of listening to the other side, challenging it and questioning it in order to increase understanding and then of getting involved in working within one's own community, informing, explaining, even teaching. At the same time, participants in dialogue should express their own convictions, clarify the place of their own sense of religion, among other views held within their religious family, and respond as well as they can to the questions of their partners in dialogue. By acting in this way, they create, between the various traditions, areas of trust, sustained by shared convictions and values that, even though they certainly do not bring the extremes together, do open real horizons for living together and at least allow ruptures to be avoided and conflicts better managed. The need for interreligious dialogue is not doubted, but some people still do not understand its real usefulness and purpose. What exactly is it about? Does one want to convert the other? Can one get involved with a clear conscience? What is the real impact of these fine words about respect and living together when we look at how believers from each religion behave? Is there not a place for being doubtful or suspicious about the intentions of one or the other side if we take the time to read the scriptural sources? These questions cannot simply be swept under the carpet. They are of primary importance because... Unless they are clearly and succinctly answered, we run the risk of having an outwardly agreeable dialogue that does not eliminate the mistrust and suspicion, and that in the end leads nowhere. Let us try, from within the Muslim tradition, to suggest possible answers to these questions, beginning with the last. Remarkable. So we'd like for, uh, we, we have just a very few minutes left, and you had some uh, of your own ideas in the introduction that pertain to this and uh, and Proust's own revelation. Proust, who was a, a Jew, uh, apparently, right? right. I, I don't think we hear that much about that part of his life. But uh, so the, this follows something of what Mr. Ramadan was talking about from your own part, your introduction that you penned. So from my introduction, let me quote the following. Is it possible to contemplate beliefs that one does not share and practices in which one does not engage and to recognize in them the shaping of a life that one can recognize as human and even good? 
When attitudes shift on a question as basic as that one, novelists and poets are often the first to notice. Mm -hmm. The novelist Marcel Proust wrote as follows about the Hindu and Buddhist concepts of samsara and karma, that is about multiple lives and, and reward or punishment for one life coming in the successive succeeding life. He wrote about these concepts, though without ever using those words, in his early 20th century masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time. And now I quote, in this passage, a novelist uh, has died, a novelist who was also an art lover and who died contemplating a painting in a museum. He was dead, dead forever, who can say? All that we can say is that everything is arranged in this life as though we entered it carrying a burden of obligations contracted in a former life. There is no reason inherent in the conditions of life on this earth that can make us consider ourselves obliged to do good, to be kind and thoughtful, even to be polite, nor for an atheist artist to consider himself obliged to begin over again a score of times a piece of work the admiration aroused by which will matter little to his worm-eaten body, like the patch of yellow wall painted with so much skill and refinement by an artist destined to be forever unknown and barely identified under the name Vermeer. All these obligations, which have no sanction in our present life, seem to belong to a different world, a world based on kindness, scrupulousness, self-sacrifice, a world entirely different from this one and which we leave in order to be born on this earth, before perhaps returning there to live once again beneath the sway of those unknown laws which we obeyed because we bore their precepts in our hearts, not knowing whose hand had traced them there. Marcel Proust was not a Hindu. He was a Frenchman of Jewish descent. Like not a few writers in his day, he may have been influenced by Fraser's The Golden Bough, but In Search of Lost Time is in any case a novel, not a work of science, philosophy, or theology. And yet we might say that in the words quoted, Proust is a Hindu by sympathetic, participative imagination, and thus among the heirs of Jean-Frédéric Bernard and Bernard Picard, they were the writers of the 18th century and we alluded to earlier. This kind of imaginatively participant sympathy was taking hold then in a new way. Thank you so much, Jack Miles. Distinguished English professor at UC Irvine and the general editor for the Norton Anthology of World Religions. Thank you for your time on Ask a Leader today. It's been a pleasure. This brings the show, Ask a Leader, to a close. Next week, as it turns out, I will bring Pastor Mark Davis of the Newport Beach St. Mark Presbyterian Church, where we'll get into some very specific religious practices of his congregation and what he has to say about some very recent practices in religion. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.